Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Posing Modernity. My guest is Denise Morell. She's the curator of Posing Modernity, the black model from Manet and Matisse to today at the Wallach Art Gallery at Columbia University. The show examines the changing modes of representation of the black figure in modern and contemporary art, as well as the model's influence on the artists with whom they worked. The exhibition is on view in New York City through February 10th before traveling to the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. The outstanding catalog for the exhibition was published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $50. On the second segment, Ralston Crawford's photographs. But first, Denise Morell, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. What is the sound of community? Find out at Sounds of L.A., a free annual concert series at the Getty, that explores our city's varied musical geography. Each month features concerts by charismatic musicians who combine global influences in unexpected ways. On January 19th and 20th, hear the Puerto Rican bomba and plena sounds of Los Planeros de la 21. Learn more at getty.edu slash 360. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery. A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery, all at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. And we're back. Denise Morell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Good to be with you today. Your interest, especially in the book, starts and is most extended around Manet's Great Olympia. Your essay, indeed really much of the book, is set up as a response to the work of the art historian T.J. Clark. So did you come to Olympia as a subject through simple fascination with the painting, or did you come to it specifically through, through Clark and your realization that, that you were rejecting much of what he'd written about it? Well, Clark came later. Clark definitely came later. And and I would I would actually say that my fascination with Olympia was set up 
by taking a series of classes, starting with the, the sort of the standard art history 101 class. Uh, I should probably mention that I come to art history as kind of a late second career. I had a previous business career and I was still in it when I started taking art history classes because I had to take some classes in order to qualify to apply for the PhD program. So I'm taking, I took a series of classes at various universities here in New York City, introductory survey classes. And anything to do with, you know, the survey, the intro to art history or introduction, the modern art survey, invariably Olympia is going to come up because it is so broadly, so widely described as the certainly a foundational painting of modern art, if not the foundational painting. And it is sitting there as a student in the classroom taking notes and listening to the professor go through the entire narrative about the reclining white odalisque. It's a pretty extensive narrative about the precedents, going back to Titian's uh, Venus of Urbino, and then the uh, successors, including Demoiselle, Picasso's Demoiselle. So I'm just kind of waiting with mounting anticipation to see exactly what he is going to say about the black woman who poses the maid figure in Olympia. Because I always, from the very first time I saw the painting, saw it as a painting that has two figures who, with almost equal interest, engaged my attention. And so I was waiting to see what that narrative would be. And I was just surprised to find that most of the time the slide flips and either nothing or next to nothing is said about the black woman who poses the maid. So I set out to, I, I asked myself and I asked in a couple of early seminar papers I did, what can be said? Is there anything to be said about the maid? Because just looking at the painting from a strictly formal on a strictly formal basis, formal analysis, you really see that she is present. She's in, she's in the foreground. She's frontal. She is of almost the same pictorial space as the reclining Odalisque. So I felt that Manet presented both of these women to us and wanted us to give attention to both of these figures. So it was it was starting out just trying to say what can be said about the maid figure in Olympia that led me to move from the sort of intro survey lecture classes to seminars where you have reading lists. And of course, the T.J. Clark essay was one of the ones that I came across. So I, I wouldn't say that I structured my entire argument around T.J. Clark's virtual silence on the maid figure in Olympia, I cite the essay as emblematic of the broader historical silence on the maid figure in Olympia. And part of why I didn't mind kind of calling, you know, naming names and calling out specific him specifically is that some years after I first read his essay, Olympia's Choice, 
and I was I owned the book at that point and was browsing through it, going back and checking various things. And I came across the preface. I have a paperback version that he published that was published 10 years after the first. And I read that preface. And in the preface, he talked about the fact that one of his good friends to whom he sent a review copy had called him out on this whole issue of you've gone on for 50 pages and more about the white lady on the bed, as she put it. And and said next to nothing about the black woman standing beside her. And he offered, with what he described as some rue, a reason for why ideologically he did not at the time see the need to speak about the May figure. So I felt that I, in citing his work, and I do cite the, pre- the preface as well, I didn't feel like I was attacking him. I was almost pointing out pointing this essay out as emblematic of the broader silence in the, across the entire field about this figure. Right. No, absolutely. Well, one of one of the, the fun things about how you do it, though, and, and maybe this is slightly insider baseball, is that Clark's Mellon lectures at the National Gallery a decade or so ago start with, and I think the book on this is already out, start with how art historians should not use biography in an effort to understand paintings. And, and, and you go on to in a way that's pointed and... and, and I, I think argues for its relevance, at least in this case, really well. And speaking of which, one of the first things you do in the book, maybe the very first thing you do once you get into your essay, is to establish that the model for the black figure in Olympia, whose name is Laura, Laura, yeah, my French pronunciation. With an E rather than an A at the end yeah. of French. So you you demonstrate how she is not an outlier as a black person in Manet's Paris and the neighborhoods he lived in and knew And that observation is really important in the rest of the book, right through your address of Matisse, right through your address of Bearden and and Romare Bearden and on. Why was it important to you to lay out the social geography of Manet's Paris? And I guess just briefly, how did you how did you do it? I definitely when you think about part of the project of modernism that Manet was foundational to, it was this idea of turning away from painting, making academic paintings of historical scenes, scenes from the past, but becoming a painter of modern life, as described by his friend Charles Baudelaire. And to go out into the neighborhood and the streets of the city and roam the boulevards, the alleyways, and just portray every aspect of life as it is lived around you. And I think that part of why Manet made these four images of women of color in the period of one year in 1862-63, three images of the model who posed the maiden Olympia lore, as well as a monumental portrait of his friend Baudelaire's biracial mistress, Jean Duval, is because there was this presence. There was this presence in the particular neighborhoods where Manet and the Impressionists lived and worked, that area of northern Paris, part of it is the Batignolles Quartier of the 17th arrondissement, another part is the 9th, around Place de Clichy, over to Place Pigalle. And of course, Place Pigalle was then and still is today an entertainment district, Folie Bergère, the Moulin Rouge. So this whole area even in the 1860s, was in a neighborhood that had migrant populations from around 
France, but as well as around Europe. And then in this particular moment, the 1860s, 15 years after the final French abolition of territorial enslavement in the French Caribbean, there was, I, I, I never want to say that there were huge numbers. That did not come until much later, the middle of the 20th century. But there was a practice of employment contracts, mainly for women, to come and be domestic household workers in exchange for having their transportation across the Atlantic paid for. And so that, together with the fact there was all there was already this small black population, was just very interesting to me because it was concentrated to the extent that I was able to identify these people in this same neighborhood where Manet and the Impressionists lived and worked. So I think that these images came into the work of Manet, Basil, Degas, Cezanne, etc., because it was part of their practice of being painters of modern life. And the other thing that I thought was very important to flesh out this lived reality was to look not just at paintings, but to look at photography. And I thought the photography of Nadar in particular was important. Nadar's photographs, Nadar was a friend of Manet. His studio was the site of the first Impressionist exhibition a number of years later. And he made portrait photographs of Manet, Baudelaire, any number of artists and writers that are iconic. His photographs are how we have our, our present understanding of how these people looked. But it really had, other than maybe one or two photographs, it really wasn't, has not been very well known, I think, that any number of Black French, uh, Black Parisians were coming through Nadar's studio as well. And we see them in the portraits that I have tried to have in the exhibition and in the book. And they're from all walks of life, a Martinican journalist, actress, a matron who is probably a French woman who's married to, who's described as being married to the mayor of a provincial British town and everything in between. So these different roles that Black Parisians occupied in everyday life is far more readily seen in the range of photography than in the more archetypal images, typically portraying the Black woman, especially as a servant that you see in fine painting, in the painting of the period. So it was looking, trying to uh, locate this, this presence in the specific geographic area of Paris and within the practice of the painters to be, uh, of the Impressionist, many and the Impressionist to be painters of modern life, as well as to document the physical reality of that presence in the work of Nadar and other photographers. So I think to understand your argument about lore and Olympia in the context of modern life and then contemporary Paris, we need to not only introduce the Nadar pictures, which you just did, but also to understand how black women were typically portrayed in French media beginning to understand the difference between a modern representation or a modernist representation of black women and a more common, indeed, stereotypical even, or, or maybe be the beginning of the, the, the French, of, of, of a specific and particular French stereotype of black women. So how 
in French media would, you know, your average Parisian, another one of those phrases I should never use again, have seen black women represented? Well, first you have painting and then you have popular culture. And when we're looking at painting of the late 19th century, we are looking for the most part at artists who are attempting to have their work shown at the Salon, the the Paris Salon. This was the uh, annual, uh, very extensive annual showing that all established artists and artists, younger artists, emerging artists used to make a name and build a career for themselves. And that would be comparable, I live in New York City, to the Whitney Biennial today in some ways. And the the Salon, you were one with an artist was admitted to the Salon based on uh, jurors who selected works from submissions. And they tended to be the academic painters who had had relatively traditional academic taste in terms of what they consider to be fine painting. So the kind of archetypal image of the black female figure that would be shown at the Salon would be drawn from Orientalist, what we call Orientalist paintings in the 1850s through the 70s by artists like Jerome. And the one that we point to in our exhibition is his Moorish bath. When you see the black, it's a a harem scene, an imagined harem scene set in a colonial space of North Africa or maybe the Ottoman Empire. And the white nude is a favorite of the, I don't know, the, the sultan or the owner of the space. And the black woman is her servant. And the black woman is invariably portrayed as bare breasted typically with a relatively muscular physique, the treatment of the arms, and in gorgeously rendered, beautifully painted, but still very definitely exoticized attire, a gorgeous turban piled high on her head, a caftan or a skirt tied at the waist beneath the bare breast in fabric that would be recognized as non-European. So this figure was presented as exotic, as an emblem of hyper or illicit sexuality, and above all, irreducibly outside the space of European or French society. And what Manet did with Olympia was to bring that figure from that exotic colonial setting into post-abolition Paris in a high-end brothel that would be typical of what he would see right there in his northern Paris neighborhood. And her breasts are covered. She's wearing loose loosely fitting garb, but clearly a French attire as opposed to uh, exotic, quote unquote. And so in that iconic painting, he is taking the black female figure out of these colonial exotic spaces and placing her in the situation where she is a paid worker, uh, a free black person in contemporary Paris and giving her the sartorial and other treatment that would place her in that way, as well as just the formal treatment uh, in terms of, you know, the modernist mode with which he made the painting, the flattening of the view into 
death. Let me jump in there before just to set that up. So you in in the book in particular set up all of this contextualizing history, you know, really for about 30 pages before bringing us back to Laura and and Olympia. And you write that Manet presents Laura as a black member of the French proletariat. So so resisting stereotype and presenting her within the context of modern Paris, as you've been discussing. And then you note that Matisse uses early, just beginning to develop modernist pictorial flatness to present her in this proletariat context. How how does he do that? How does he flatten the picture plane and in so doing present lore within within the French proletariat? Well, if you think about that standard juxtaposition when you're looking at Olympia with Titian's Venus of Urbino, a 16th century Venetian Renaissance painting, which is considered to be the precursor that Manet was reacting, responding to. And you look at the maid, you look at the placement of the maid figures, and in the Titian, she's uh, much smaller in scale. She's turned toward the back. She's bending over a trousseau. She's not part of the foreground that is the subject where the odalisque is reclining on a bed, waiting to receive her patron, uh, and that, and which is the subject of the painting. But, but even just the fact that there is that view into depth, the servant is turned away into a background that is pictured, you know, in kind of Renaissance perspective, that alone is something that Manet moved away from with his uh, portrayal of this room, this chamber in a brothel in Paris. The drape of the two of the green black curtains, the flattening basically closes off a view into depth, and both of the figures are pushed into the foreground. So that kind of pictorial, the flattening of the pictorial plane. And then just kind of the loose gestural uh, strokes, uh, the, the flatness of the figures themselves, including the Olympia, the prostitute. Uh, her body doesn't take on the kind of softly rounded flesh tones and, and uh, carefully molded physique that would be typical of a Renaissance painting. There is something that is more like an impression of her body rather than an attempt to actually portray her exactly as she looked. And so those gestures, those pictorial gestures were definitely part of what made modernness painting modern, as well as the, the change in subject matter. So it's the contemporary setting, recognizable location, even recognizable person, as opposed to something that is clearly from the past and something that sits outside the daily lived reality of the viewers of the painting. So is part of your argument that the modernist flattening of pictorial space sets up or is a metaphor for the equality of the two figures? Well, in some ways it may mandate it or, or it enhances the artist's ability to present these figures in a more or less formally equal way. The the standing figure of the maid takes up almost as much pictorial space as the horizontal figure of the prostitute. And part of that is because she's pushed into the foreground. But I would also argue that just the interaction, I mean, she still could hypothetically be turned away to the side, arranging flowers in a vase or something, but she seems to be in interaction with the prostitute. She's bringing her a bouquet of flowers. The prostitute is, at least for the moment, 
not not accepting those flowers. She's typically read as confronting her patron and saying, "Look, these flowers are very nice, but this is I'm a worker. I'm a I'm a sex worker. I need to be paid, and we don't have to go through this pretense of you know uh, emotional attachment, uh, etc." And so it allows him to present these two women, both of them, as working women who are being paid and sex work as a as a domain or a realm of the working classes of this modernizing Paris in the 1860s. Olympia is not the only time Manet paints Laura, as as as, as you noted earlier. How were his various ways of painting her, not just in Olympia, but in the other paintings too, in keeping with abolitionist sculpture and painting. And do you think that was intentional? Well, first of all, yes, Olympia was one of three portrayals of Lore, and it was the final. Uh, most scholars believe that it was the final uh, image that he made of her. The A few months earlier, she sat came to a studio and sat for what I consider to be a portrait, a single figure image where she directly faces the viewer and her face is depicted in a relatively specific way. You have a sense that you're looking at this individual here. And becoming aware of that portrait was one of my early discoveries. It's not necessarily that hard to find because it's been very well documented that it's been out there from the beginning, but it's certainly not part of the context around Olympia that is shown in the sort of typical lecture class where Olympia is discussed. So finding the portrait was kind of a revelation for me. Also finding that in his studio carnet or notebook, for the sessions with uh, when he made her portrait, he described her. This is where why we have some limited information about her today. He wrote there was a couple there were a couple of lines. Laure, her name, Trebel Negress, very beautiful black woman. Negress, of course, has its pejorative uh, racial racially pejorative connotations, but it was the common usage of the day. But describing her as very beautiful was something that was intriguing to me as well. And then he gave us her address. 11 Rue Vantamia, which is just a couple of blocks below this Place de Clichy neighborhood that I was talking about. So she lived within walking distance of Manet's studio. And she also lived in this immediate area where other noted Black Parisians of the period lived, like Alexandre Dumas, the famous novelist who wrote The Three Musketeers, and his son, Alexandre Dumas Père, uh, uh, Fils, who was a playwright. And Fils was a friend of, of Manet. And then the other thing about the portrait is that, again, if you look at that portrait in comparison with precedent portraits of Black women, and two of the iconic images that I point to are by Delacroix, his portrait of a woman in a turban, and then in, this is the 1820s, and then earlier in 1801, Benoit's portrait of a black woman, an enslaved woman from Haiti as an emblem of liberty in kind of this neoclassical era at the turn into the 19th century. So both Delacroix and Benoit the precedents to Manet's Portrait of Laure are making very well-painted images. The women are portrayed not so much as individuals whose individual personality 
personality we're supposed to become curious about, but as symbols. And you see that in their attire. Their their attire is not what they would be walking around the streets of Paris wearing. In fact, the attire suggests that they would not be walking around the streets of Paris. They would be outside Parisian society. Whereas Laura is wearing, you know, this kind of neckline, off the shoulder, uh, very impressionistically rendered. You see the big. You see why Manet is considered to be the precursor of impressionism. That is very commonly seen in fashion plates of the era as a very stylish second empire neckline with its flat pleats across the uh, border and some embellishments around the sleeves. So he is in that portrait, even before he poses her in the brothel scene, presenting her as herself as uh, a denizen of his daily lived experience in Paris. The other thing I liked about that portrait is there's nothing from the portrait that tells you exactly what her social position is. She could be she could be someone who works as a domestic servant. Uh, she could be in any of these other roles that we see Black women of the period occupying in Nadar's uh, painting. So that contingency of her social position, as well as presenting her co breast-covered in identifiably French attire, along with her West African Lard or head wrap. I think all of those things are the way that he broke away from Delacroix and the previous ways of portraying black women and turned us to in the direction of the future that we are still, you know, sort of going through. I should mention that the third image that Manet made of Laura, which was a kind of generic scene, children in the Tuileries, another scene from modern life in Paris. He poses her as a nanny attending her, the young children of an affluent family who are playing in the, in the Tuileries gardens, which Manet noted that he walked through on almost a daily basis on his way to the Louvre to, for sketching sessions there. So these are three scenes, nursemaid, brothel worker, and then as herself that are all uh, sort of just representations of the roles that a woman of color would have had in 1860s Paris. Yes, we'll have all, all of those images on manpodcast.com. Matisse, you, you turn from Manet to Matisse, and you offer Matisse as, as more or less the only member of the Parisian avant-garde who presents black women in ways that were modern rather than as primitivizing or stereotyping. And your first example, which your first-ish example anyway, is Matisse's roughly 18-inch tall bronze titled Two Black Women. As you note, it's the only Matisse sculpture that features two people. It's based on a photograph rather than live models. How, how is it modern and maybe how is it not primitivist? Well, I, I see the sculptor De Negresse to Black Woman as part of Matisse's transition from, I mean, Matisse was born in, what, 1870, 1880s. He was trained in the 19th century and his initial artistic practice until he broke away with Fauvism was pulling from these old tropes of pictorial style. So the two nudes, the two Black women, Woman was the beginning of his working in an increasingly abstracted, non-naturalistic way. He's not trying to create the natural mold, mold, you know, curvature of the of the body. He is creating an object that portrays his 
reaction, his his expression of his reaction to the photograph that he is looking at of these two Nubian women. But still, the women are nude. So he's pulling from this kind of old traditional pictorial type, but he's making it in a new way. And you see that in his paintings of roughly that period or a little bit later as well. He goes to Morocco. He makes two portraits that are titled the Mulatress Fatma. And both of them are Fatma's portrayed in a very orientalizing way, exotic attire. But with modern pictorial values, the flattening of the figures. And it's sort of, so he, you see that he, if you look at Fatma, you can see that he's evoking 19th century pictorial tropes, but the manner in which he presents those figures could only be of the 20th century, the kind of pictorial flattening. And then a decade or so later, he's working with the model Aisha, as well as his longtime Italian model, Lorette, in Aisha and Lorette, and Le Déjeuner Oriental, and retaining this kind of orientalizing style, but again, with modern pictorial values. And in this case, with the beginning of modernist content values, in that he is presenting Aisha and Lorette on pictorially egalitarian terms, as opposed to the old trope of the black servant and the white employer. So that's where you find Matisse in the early 20th century, up until about just before 1920. And then a decade after that, he crosses the Atlantic for the first time and has some experiences that I believe affected his his late work with the black female figure. So those 1916 and 17 paintings, we'll have both of those on, on Man Podcast as well. So speaking particularly of, I guess, these 1617 pictures, but I guess it continues forward for that matter, you read a good bit into a line in one letter that Matisse sent in World War I about how he noted the, quote, mingling of the races among Allied troops in Paris. And you wield it to posit that Matisse felt that representing an ethnically plural society was both a break with the 19th century and also, of course, quintessentially modern. Why is that important to establish textually? And and why did you think there was enough in that letter to to sustain the idea, to, to extend it into the pictorial sphere, to read it into the pictorial sphere? It was just one of those things when I was looking at, you know, possible intentionality. Uh, as I saw Matisse's mode of portraying the black female figure evolve, I was just looking for clues as to, you know, what his attitudes about race and gender were. And I'm not in any way trying to romanticize him or say that he was a man ahead of his time. I don't think he necessarily had any very well-developed or intentional views about race in terms of the socio-political issues. But on the other hand, I think he was open-minded enough about race that he did not deliberately exclude women of color from the modernist experiments that he, the evolving modernist uh, pictorial experiments that he was undertaking. 
Well, I think actually if there was any intentionality, it might have come a little bit later because I do think that through his contacts with Alfred Barnes, when he accepted the commission to for the dancer murals in Philadelphia, and then just being part of the avant-garde of Paris in the 20s into the 30s, the openness to modernist music, which would be jazz, and the primitivist engagement with the traditional aesthetics of the African mask. He was already engaged in all of those discourses, but... And his use of Cuba cloth, right, Cuba the, textiles. Right, the, the, the Congo, right, the Cuba cloth uh, hanging on the walls in his studio. So, I mean, he was he was eclectic, I'm not going to go so far as to say he was colorblind, because, but I just think he was open to taking in ideas and considering the modern aspect of multiple cultures rather than playing into some kind of hierarchical narrative where, you know, European culture and European subjects were the exclusive focus of his work. And I, so I think he worked much more broadly than he's actually been historicized. I mean, so many people tell me that they're just completely surprised to see that Matisse worked ex as extensively as he did with black models, especially in the 1940s. But I think it just comes out of that kind of indifference or sort of just, you know, openness, as opposed to closed-minded bigotry that would say this person of color could not possibly be the subject of a fine painting that I would make. You really demonstrate that with not just Matisse's drawings of the 1940s of, of black women and photographs of Matisse making those drawings of black women, but also the way you juxtapose not side by side, but but still within the context of the project, juxtapose that attention and that rejection of stereotype with your presentation of stereotypes of stereotypical representation of black women from earlier in the 20th and in the late 19th century. And so especially the pictures, the photographs of Matisse in his studio really read in the context of, of the project as an engagement with an individual rather than engagement of a type or a stereotype. Exactly. And that's why it was that's why photography's been so important for me throughout. It really does capture the reality of the milieu in which these artists lived and worked in a way that the actual produced paintings or artworks may not have because the artists in making the artwork might have felt more need to play into the more expected modes of portrayal. But you capture him there in his studio and she's posing and he's asking her to, you know, to pose humor or be the femme fatale. And she's posing all these roles and then they take a break and he's smoking and she's reading a, a note. And we also know, courtesy of the Matisse archives, that he had ongoing correspondences with uh, most of these models as well, long after they posed for him in the 40s. So he did deal with them as members of his, certainly his artistic circle, and in some cases, his social circle. Which, which in these years were really, you know, in, in late Matisse's life, that really blurs. There's a really interesting transition within the project in which you have Matisse in Harlem, and then you have Harlem looking at Matisse. 
when does Matisse go to Harlem and why is it important? He goes to Harlem in the early 1930s. He makes four visits to the U.S. in 1930 and 1933. And the uh, sensible reason, well, the first time he was on his way to Tahiti. And I guess the most direct passage was across the U.S. rather than across the Eurasian continent. And so given that he was in the U.S., he saw lots of collectors and went visited museums, et cetera. And I think that may have been what led to his commission, his very important commission by Albert Barnes to make the dancer murals at the Barnes Foundation, which was still then, of course, in Marion, outside Philadelphia. So his subsequent trips were to work on the murals at the Barnes, but for each visit, he stopped over coming and going and or going in New York and stayed in New York for at least a week or so. And it was in that context, uh, Matisse's visits to New York were quite well documented and publicized. Major New York Times and other press coverage of his visits to the Met and being fed it by the Rockefeller family. But less known and really unknown, except through letters that he was writing daily to his wife and daughter back in France was what he was doing in the evenings, which was a lot of the time, every other night or so, going to jazz clubs in Harlem. He would describe, he would talk about the club he went to and describe it to his, uh, in his letters. And he saw a black play that we still have not been able to identify definitively, but wrote to some length about his admiration for the acting and the costumes, et cetera. Even before Matisse came to New York, there are letters from his uh, between his son and his wife and Matisse. Uh, Pierre Matisse was by that time a prominent gallerist in New York. And there were letters where Pierre is saying, I'm bringing a, a bunch of jazz records that I bought in the Cartier Noir, the black town, or Harlem's. Harlem spelled with two A's, interestingly, by both Pierre and Matisse. And uh, his wife would write about, he's in there, he's playing those jazz records, and, you know, I'm doing everything I can to, you know, just kind of focus on my letter. He's grabbing me to dance and that sort of thing. So this was the late 1920s. And then he came to the U.S. and he actually went to jazz clubs. And then as late as the 1940s, there were entries in his diary where he was going to concerts of uh, Negro spirituals in France. So that is sort of one pivotal person, we think, was Carl Van Vechten. One of the physical documents of Matisse's presence in New York at the time was his studio session. He sat for two portraits by Van Vechten. And of course, Van Vechten was a white American, one of the few white Americans who was very close to the luminaries of the Harlem Renaissance, including Alain Locke, the philosopher who kind of established the mandate of the Harlem artists to portray uh, their own community, the urban, the, the new black cities of New York and Chicago in modernist pictorial styles to resist and override the pre prevalent stereotyping that existed in the population. American culture at the time. So uh, there's also uh, evidence we know that via Van Vechten, the two families, Matisse and uh, Robeson and Matisse, met at least once in Paris 
it's not 100% clear that Matisse himself was present, but certainly his wife and Robeson's wife wrote extensively about those encounters later. So it's kind of, you know, we kind of know the story of the Harlem Renaissance artists going to Paris for long stays because of limited opportunities for black artists in this country at the time. But this is a story of a major French artist coming to New York and engaging with the culture and, in my view, reflecting what he saw in his portrayals of black women subsequent to those uh, to those years. Do you think do you think that experience is reflected in, you know, the paintings of the 1940s or 50s or? Well, in, yes, I, I, I mean, there are multiple influences. But if you look, there was a specific set of easel paintings that Matisse made in 1946, uh, 47, posed by a Belgian Congolese, uh, a very elegant young woman who was Belgian, mixed race Belgian Congolese, a journalist who was married to a, a, a lawyer living in Nice at the time. Uh, so she was a social peer of Matisse and knew some of the writers like Aragon around Matisse. And you look at these paintings like the one from the Des Moines Museum and the one from the Pompidou. She's seated. She's wearing kind of elegant dress. Matisse made many images of models of all nationalities, Belgian and Spanish and Russian in that period. But this is the first time he placed a woman of color in that type of scene without any of the visible or the traditional tropes of representation of black woman. No elaborate, you know, head wrap or jewelry. She's just a member of, you know, sort of cosmopolitan mid-1940s uh, society, French-American. And I juxtapose those images, those paintings, with the types of portraits that he would have been aware of from the 1920s Harlem Renaissance artists when they too were portraying black women as seated and glancing to the side and, you know, uh, elegant and urbane and just kind of pulling away from tradition and from stereotype. So I actually do a few juxtapositions of both paintings and drawings of Matisse's paintings with Harlem Renaissance uh, artist paintings, Charles Alston, William H. Johnson, as well as his drawings of the Haitian dancer Carmen in comparison with photographs by Van der Zee, the African-American photographer, Harlem photographer Van der Zee, and Carl Van Becten. And there's just an affinity there. I don't go as far as to say absolute influence because I don't have the smoking gun of a letter or a note from him saying, this is what I'm doing. The visual but... suffices. The visual suffices. We're, we're art historians. It doesn't always have to be textual. <laughs> this is a case where you really don't have to look at the biography. Just look at the pictorial. Look at the formal. And I will say, I mean, going back to this idea of you don't have to talk about the artist's biography to understand his work, and that's debatable, of course, to some extent. But part of how I got my analysis of Olympia was through strict formal analysis. This woman is present in that painting. She's forward. She's hierarchically. So why are we overlooking her when she's, you know, presented on terms that are so formally similar to the to the prostitute? 
And I did that same analysis with uh, Matisse's 1940s paintings and drawings in juxtaposition with the type of Harlem Renaissance work that he surely was exposed to via Carl Van Vechten and via his presence in, in Harlem at the time. Oh, and if I could add one other thing, uh, not a direct Harlem influence, but the last that we hear from Matisse in his final years was the his portrayal of two African-American dancers, uh, Catherine Dunham and Josephine Baker, in that final mode of painting or picture making that he made late in life, the cut paper or cutout paintings. So we have Catherine Dunham. We've forgotten a little bit about Catherine Dunham today, but in the 1940s, she was just as famous and feted in Paris as Josephine Baker. And we do some analysis of her costumes. There's some information that Matisse attended her performances and writers of the time, Matisse friends, pointed to this uh, cutout Creole dancer as being an evocation of Matisse having seen Catherine Dunham in performance. So African-American dancers, Belgian Congolese journalist, Haitian dancer, who later, by the way, married an African-American soldier she met in Nice, and so her family today is African-American of Haitian uh, origin. That's the type of cosmopolitan mid-20th uh, mid century world that Matisse portrays in these works. The one other thing in this period of Matisse that's worth pointing out, and of course we'll have the images on manpodcast.com, is the 1946 painting at the Pompidou. You mentioned it didn't fit orientalizing or stereotypical portraits of black women, but it does, I think, reference Manet's portrait of Jean Duval that you mentioned earlier. Two more things. Uh, there's a great section in the book on, on Bearden, Romare Bearden, and his engagement with Olympia. Why do you think Bearden was interested in, in Olympia? Well, his uh, we have his uh, patchwork quilt, 1970, in the show, uh, courtesy, courtesy of the Museum of Modern Art. And I see that is, well, you know, Bearden was the master collagist, an artist rooted in Harlem, initially in Charlotte, North Carolina, but for many years in Harlem. And having spent time in Paris, like the Harlem Renaissance artists that were the generation before him, he too comes back and settles into New York and using this mode of collage portrays city life, African-American city life, in a way that through collage, I mean, the whole idea of cutting and pasting, I think for him, was very emblematic, first of the type of formal improvisation that he very much admired about jazz. And second, about the cultural hybridity that under that defines African-American culture. We're Western. We're also of African descent. And we've created our own, you know, unique African-American culture through quilt making and jazz and literature, poetry, et cetera, here in this country. So he uses the the picture-making device of collage to capture that cultural hybridity. But he also uses it to place the Black female figure in this historical trope of the reclining nude, the reclining odalisque that dates back to Manet and earlier, but he in particular, Bearden in particular, admired Manet and Matisse. 
And he talked about the way that he studied all of the past masters, but he took care to try to replicate the color of Manet and Matisse, and you see signs of that in Patchwork Quilt. But what he's really doing is he's, you know, sort of taking the Laura figure, in my view, and placing, moving her from the position of the servant to the position of the object of desire. But he's also moving away from the, what is desirable about her isn't these explicitly, you know, the explicit display of her sexual attributes. It's the fact that she is emblematic of a culture, an African-American culture that is manifested in the patchwork quilt, in the Egyptian tombstone aspects of her, the way he portrays her figure, the mask aesthetics, but also the Odalisque format from fine European painting. These are all the cultural components that make up African-American identity. And this was the end of the 1960s, the Black is Beautiful movement. So I think all of these things come into play in this masterpiece patchwork quilt that we were really fortunate to have in the show. In, in both patchwork quilt from 1970 and in Black Venus from 1968, Bearden even includes flowers and the cat. And the uh, cat. He, yeah. He's making images. I don't think it's in, and we don't have Black Venus in the show, but I certainly wanted to have it in the catalog. Because again, Patchwork Quilt is the end result of a series of explorations that he made. Black Venus, there's another version of Patchwork Quilt as a finished collage. There's a study for Patchwork Quilt. His archive show spreads uh, that feature Olympia and other reclining Olalisk. So my sense, I wanted to portray in the catalog more than I had the space to do in the galleries, that he was taking in all of these different sources and inspired by the improvisation of jazz using this improvisatory mode of picture making, the collage, the collage methodology to convey these values in his, in his work. And finally, you close the book with biographical sketches, really more than biographical sketches, kind of personal experience sketches of, of three models, three Matisse models. Why is that how you wanted to end the book? I, I felt that that was the, we thought about or placing those profiles in the text as inserts, but I ultimately felt that that might be disruptive of the kind of unfolding formal, you know, analysis of the works themselves. And I wanted to have the space that really is focused on the models as opposed to, to the artist and the work of the artist. And I just wanted also to have these, to put together all in one place for each of the three women in that profile section, this information, most of which has never been published before, that really shows the sort of, first of all, their own very interesting and accomplished lives. They all had major challenges, but they all were, you know, were very interesting and, and successful in careers that haven't really been explored that much. I think that's one area of future inquiry because I have seen profiles and I've seen exhibitions about other models, the Matisse, a Russian model, Lydia, who posed for him. And of course, she sat for a very, very extensive body of work. But some of these models that are featured in my show, I think, could be the subject of further work. The work I show 
is not everything there is out there about them. And I think I just wanted to try to call attention in a way that have them be focal points of attention and learning about the extent of their work with in this case, Matisse, but also about how their lives, you know, the Belgian Congolese uh, journalist and the Haitian dancer married to an African-American and the woman of Martinican descent, who uh, this is Catherine Dubois, they kind of are a portrayal of the varied lived experiences of the Black, French, and the African diaspora as we understand it today. So I wanted to just in a very focused way be able to provide these profiles for them. And I was lucky, fortunate, that I had courtesy of the Archie Matisse. I was able to pull the information together about them, in some cases meet them. Catherine Dubois posed for Matisse in the 1940s at the age of 12 is still with us today, living and working or living in France. And she gave us a an unforgettable interview. And then Elvira Van Eeft, Madame Van Eeft, as Matisse called her, and Carmen Lyons, their families are both around today. So we were able to get wonderful information about them. You even took a picture of Catherine Dubois, and it's in the book. It's a, a great picture full of these kind of uh, probably slightly unintentional references to French art history, too. So the two bottles on the table in the background. <laughs> I, I, I know. I mean, I just I was the angle as I was sitting as we interviewed her. I just couldn't. I did ask her first, but I just thought I'm not even a photographer, but I know a good frame, a good context for this particular story when I see one. She's Picasso's Gertrude Stein leaning forward, too. So <laughs> ah, I thought I didn't think about that one. Denise Morell. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections. This landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a major survey of works by Laurie Simmons, showcasing the artist's photographs spanning the last four decades from 1976 to the present a small selection of sculpture, and two films. Simmons's career-long exploration of archetypal gender roles, especially women in domestic settings, is the primary subject of this exhibition, and is a topic as poignant today as it was in the late 1970s, when she began to develop her mature style. Organized with full support of the artist, this retrospective exhibition features over 130 works. On view from October 14th to January 27th, 2019. Visit themodern.org for more information. Welcome back. Next up, Keith Davis, the curator of 
Structured Vision, the photographs of Ralston Crawford at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City. The exhibition is a survey of Crawford's photographic practice, from his street photography, to his pictures of New Orleans and jazz, to his photographs of dams in the western landscape. It's on view through April 7th. The excellent exhibition catalog, all of the Nelson Atkins' photography exhibition catalogs are terrific, was published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $47. Keith Davis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Good to be here. Thank you. In 1942, when he was 35 years old, Ralston Crawford, then a well-known painter who had been featured in Life magazine a couple years prior, enlisted in the military, as one, one did in early 1942, and one of the jobs in the service for which he applied was to be a photographer in the Navy. Other than that he, <laughs> he didn't really like being in the military and was surely looking for a bit of elbow room, why did he want that job? Well, it's a very good question. A lot of this information I've gotten from uh, Neilan Crawford, Ralston's son, who work closely with him, of course, and from Barbara Haskell's really fine text uh, done for a book that came out in 1985, I think, from the Whitney. Haskell's text is still the the go-to um, overview of his uh, biography and career, in, in my opinion. Crawford was uh, 35, I think, in 1942, and he enlisted because he was uh, fearing getting drafted, and so he wanted to have some choice in where he went. And it is interesting that his first application was to be a photographer. That was turned down. And then, of course, he ended up in the Weather Bureau of the uh, Air Force. Crawford had taken up the camera pretty seriously in 1938. So he'd, he'd had a good four years or so behind him of uh, pretty serious use of the camera. And from that early date, 1938, treated the medium in at least two ways, as a art mode in itself, and as a tool of documentation, as a way of making, if you will, quote-unquote, studies for future potential use as, uh, in paintings. So by 42, he'd, he'd had a number of years' experience with the camera, was, was pretty sophisticated and pretty um, experienced in its use, and used it in uh, at least a couple different ways that I think extended uh, throughout the rest of his career. We'll come back to 38 and 39 a little bit later on. After his military service, Crawford returned, well, continues to paint. He never really stopped, but he takes up photography with more intent, if you will. That's a horrible word. In 1947, 48-ish. What is he photographing after the war? And, and is he intentionally, consciously, I don't know what the right word is, allying his painting practice with his photography practice? Well, that that was one of the, the big questions that, that intrigued me from the beginning with his work. But my sense is that by 47, 48, the, the camera had become a more important tool for him. It had been a significant tool prior to that time, but it took on increased importance. And interestingly, that happened essentially in parallel when he began printmaking, working in lithography primarily, but also silkscreen and, and later etching. That overall shift really happens at a time when, frankly, his his uh, sales of paintings is declining. He was a very well-known artist in 1939, 1940, 41. During the war, he felt that he had fallen out of the limelight, and there were tremendous stylistic changes in the art world that happened in that period. And by the late 40s, the style that he was celebrated for and very well known for in the late 1930s was definitely not so much in fashion uh, anymore. And so his 
he continued painting. Painting continued to be his primary mode of artistic expression, but economically speaking, that was not as conducive to a living as it had been prior to that time. So in addition to doing teaching gigs around the country, that, that also begins very seriously in the late 40s or continues, increases in importance in the late 40s. He broadens out to get more serious about photography and to start making films and uh, making prints. So what's he photographing in, in the late 40s? Well, one of the key series, of course, is the Third Avenue L. He made many photographs of the, of the L. He was interested in the structural aspect of that bit of engineering. And from my standpoint, he was intrigued by something that was quite majestic, but so familiar that, that it was almost invisible to normal eyes, or at least invisible as an aesthetic kind of subject. But given his travels uh, around the country to, to do teaching gigs, he made photographs of all kinds of things. Uh, in, in the book, we, we reproduce quite a number of his early industrial pictures that begin in the late 30s, very active through the early 40s, but continue uh, on in the years after that period as well. But in the late 40s, his attention shifts significantly from sort of pure architectural or engineering subjects or predominance of those kind of things toward sort of smaller scale but equally intriguing subjects such as the Third Avenue L or close-ups of locomotive cars, that sort of thing. He also made street pictures in New York. He was a great flaneur and and at least in the walks to and from apartment to studio, painting studio, he pretty often had a 35 millimeter camera with him. And so he's making street photographs as well. He had a tremendous curiosity about what was around him. And one use of the camera was to feed that curiosity or to take advantage of just this this range of subjects and incidents that he came across. And again, He's making photographs for their own merit, and he's also making potential studies for prints and paintings. One of the Third Avenue L pictures is a great example. There's there's a litho informed by the picture. It's it's not exactly the picture. In fact, the more you look at it, the more you realize it isn't exactly the picture that he made uh, a couple years, three years after he started photographing the Third Avenue L. We'll have an image of it on on manpodcast.com. You you mentioned the street work, which continues for a number of years, mostly in New York, but also in New Orleans and other places. I mean, we think of Crawford's painting and, and I think much of his photography as being this kind of cool, odd, hard-edgy, industrial, angular, muscular stuff. The street photographs have ideas all their own. What, what is the activity or the, the texture of, of, of the city he's, he's interested in in the street photographs? The street photographs were a bit of a revelation for me because they do open up uh, another facet of his whole sensibility. It's definitely true that we have tended to think of Crawford as a late precisionist, dealing with industrial or physical architectural subjects in a very cool formal kind of manner. And there is that. that That's not untrue. But he was bigger than that. His work is broader than that. And in part, the street work, to me at least, reveals his interest in pop culture, in political matters, in the state of the union, so to speak, the state of contemporary society. 
that is something we we typically haven't associated with Crawford's vision. In chatting with folks that knew him very well, I got a much richer, I believe, sense of his personality. The fact that he did follow contemporary events and politics, he had firm opinions on the state of the world. He was amused by particular cartoonists in The New Yorker, for example. One person I talked to told me a story which I thought was really kind of amazing, that in his studio, in his painting studio, Crawford kept this amazing collection of objects in his window, and those objects were broken umbrellas that he picked off the street and brought back to the studio and hung up as kind of found sculptures. And that that's a fabulous sort of idea. And I wish there were some photographs of, of this you know, crazy display of these broken, twisted, non-functional things hanging in his window. But, but that opens up this other aspect of him where we realize he had a sense of humor, a sense of irony, a sense of, well, a, a love for found objects and serendipity and chance. And all of that is wrapped up, I think, in the, the, the New York pictures, in, in the, the 35 millimeter street pictures that are, you know, a facet of the overall body of work. Another series of Crawford's pictures that I didn't know at all was work he made in Cologne in the early 1950s to, to fill in a bit of the, the history. In the early 50s, he's living in New York and he heads to Europe to work in printmaking ateliers in Paris. You, you mentioned this kind of crossover shared interest between his photography and his printmaking practice. And, and while, he's, while Crawford is in Paris, he makes a side trip to, to Cologne. What does he see there? How does it affect him? And how does it, how does it kind of give him flashbacks kind of to an earlier experience? Yeah, the Cologne trip is really important. This happens in the summer of 51. And interestingly, he, he goes over to Cologne originally to buy a Leica camera. So there's a photographic element to that as well. He's in Paris in 51 because that's his first major trip to make prints in the leading print ateliers in Paris. And he continues that effort almost year after year after year for another decade or, or more, actually. He makes a number of trips to Paris. But yeah, what he saw in, in Cologne really shocked him. Uh, six years after the end of the war, a big chunk of the city of Cologne was still in ruins from the bombings in World War II. And he was fascinated and horrified by the scale of the destruction, and he made uh, a number of photographs of the destruction there. One in particular of this hanging shard of concrete became a key motif for a number of prints that he then makes in the Paris studio in the 51. So he immediately turns that into a key motif. But all of that really resonated with him because in part, he during his uh, military service in the war, he witnessed the, the, after effect, the aftermath of airplane crashes, military air crashes and both sketched and photographed some of those effects. And then, of course, in the summer of 46, is one of the witnesses for the Army's A-bomb tests at Bikini Atoll and makes a number of photographs and then makes paintings of, of the effects of witnessing the A-bomb tests. And those experiences profoundly changed his his entire attitude. He went from a celebratory notion of engineering and logic and rationality to something much more complicated 
that combined the, a celebra celebratory notion of the, the, the modern mind with this new idea of destruction, entropy, chaos, etc. So his his work after World War II is definitely more complicated and richer than it had been before. We've mentioned New Orleans a couple times. New Orleans is a big part of Crawford's photographic life. He first traveled there and into the South, I think, in, in 1938 and 39, where he photographs African-American life in the South in a Southern prison. So in 38 and 39, why does he go? I think he was just intrigued by the South as a you know, a different environment from the, the North. He was born and raised around Buffalo, New York, and of course uh, was living in New York City um, at that point. I'm not exactly sure what spurred the making of those specific bodies of work. Uh, again, the uh, convicts in a southern prison and uh, workers on a chain gang and, and so forth. But he was clearly interested in that general issue and in a larger way in interested in Southern African-American culture, and, and that interest increased steadily over time as well. A handful of those early photographs were reproduced in a literary journal so uh, of the time. So he saw them, even though they come out, in my mind, they come out of a Dorothea Lang FSA kind of sensibility, the context in which they first appeared was not your usual documentary kind of publication, but a more literary an, an artistic publication. So uh, even then, there's this interesting kind of hybrid uh, intentionality, I think, that, that's, that's part of his approach and his work. Crawford returns to New Orleans again and again in the ensuing decades. I, I get an obvious question is to ask what attracted him to the city, although I think jazz is probably a pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, he, he really loved jazz. But in those subsequent trips, you know, in those, those post-war trips, what kind of what kind of work did he make? It's different from what he does almost anywhere else. It is. And quite honestly, coming to grips with the New Orleans pictures was the evolution of my understanding of who I think, at least, Crawford is. Unlike most of his other work, the New Orleans pictures, in my mind, really truly begin as a kind of classical documentary project. The early pictures are done with a speed graphic 4x5 with a, with a flash, the same kind of camera Ouija would have been using or any uh, professional photojournalist. And Crawford is very much interested in exactly who he's photographing, you know, who are these musicians, wh where the pictures are made, which clubs, which houses, and so forth and so on. And, of course, that body of work grew tremendously in size. I mean, he devoted incredible effort to this project, making thousands of pictures in the first couple of years and continuing for, for a good decade. That work begins in 1949, and by 1960, I think it is, the the new jazz archive at Tulane University purchases 800 of these photographs as the first photographic component of the, the great Tulane jazz archive. So, the work was conceived by him primarily as a documentary, well, really as a documentary project, and seen at the time as exactly that. He, at the same time, is making an effort to go into the cemeteries, for example, to make photographs that more frequently could have been considered as source material for paintings and prints. But his jazz photographs, to my knowledge, were never used that way. They they kind of stand alone as a 
full-blown, coherent documentary project. But that to me, again, that to me was a little bit of a stumbling block years and years ago where I just wasn't quite sure how to think about that work. But but now it seems clear to me that it it illustrates the breadth of Crawford's understanding of what photography does. Photography can do many things, and he embraced that multiplicity of uses. And many of the pictures he made were formalistic. There are formal studies of shapes and relationships that you know, were either finished works of art as photographs or potential sources for prints or paintings. In the, in the New Orleans work, we have a body of work that was conceived in a documentary uh, fashion and created and used exactly in that way. So it's another dimension of his understanding of what the camera really can do. There's also a, a New Orleans body of work that captures the city's vernacular architecture and built environment that kind of resonates later in, in Crawford's life in the 1960s when he goes to Spain or even in the 1970s when he's walking around New York. Is there a relationship between the highly industrial forms he photographs early in his career, mostly in the North, and these kind of vernacular-ish images he makes in New Orleans and New York and Spain? Certainly there is. I think part of it is the sort of yin-yang tension between pristine architectural forms and weathered or broken down or less than new architectural forms. Um, this play between form and chaos, between uh, pure rationality and you know the forces of entropy and time and, and mortality, quite frankly. So I think it's, it's part, those images are an important part of this larger sort of cycle. He took great pleasure in images of weathered and decayed and even destroyed objects. But I see those as, in terms of his thinking, as an integral part of this larger cycle of birth-death renewal, this, this full sort of cycle of creation destruction. Um, whereas in the first part of his career, he was only looking at one part of that cycle. Even before the midpoint of his career, he's consciously sort of contemplating a a full sort of 360-degree cycle of birth-death renewal. He was also interested in just the vitality, the energy, the the exuberance of the the life that he saw in New Orleans that centered on music, certainly, but was part of a whole sort of cultural eco ecosystem that, that very much appealed to him. So his interest in that kind of vernacular, creative energy and spirit um, comes across very strongly, I think, in general, in those New Orleans pictures. You mentioned the photographs Crawford made of street signs, advertisements, that some of which had been torn away, leaving what was beneath. In 1965, he makes a couple of pictures that mash, and of course, photography, you know, really flattens space, and in this case, time. So there are a couple pictures he makes that, uh, in 1965, in New York, that feature... <laughs> Uh, I don't mean to laugh, but the, uh, you'll see in a moment why I don't mean to laugh. Um, that are kind of um, advertisements for for William F. Buckley, running for for mayor, I think it was, and and Crawford mashes up these Buckley posters with what and what does that tell us about Crawford? Well, again, I to, to me this indicates his both his wit, his irony, kind of sarcastic attitude, and probably something about his political leanings as well, but. 
Yeah, the the Buckley pictures are are pretty great, I think. And it's one of the few cases where he uses words in a very specific way above the images that the political posters say. He has the guts to tell the truth. Will you listen? And then the image itself, the face itself, is just this sort of monstrous, creepy, yeah, mishmash of bits and pieces of other images that is kind of frightening, actually. (laughs) And he may have done that with with any similar poster, but it's interesting that he he really zeroed in on that one. And I reproduced two of these, two variants, to suggest his, his, his broader interest in that particular motif. But yeah, he was fascinated by the signs of weathering. And uh, posters are great for this because they, they uh, when top surfaces come off or when they're scraped away, um, all these other subtexts are, are revealed and, and create something, a visual message, message that's completely new. One of the pictures, someone, perhaps Crawford, I suppose, has drawn a Hitler-esque mustache onto the, the male head just above Buckley's name. <laughs> I would be surprised if Crawford himself did that, but I'm sure he chuckled when he saw it. <laughs> and, and happily made a picture of it. At the very end of Crawford's life, in the early 1970s, he travels a bit in the West, makes some pictures of canyons, but also refer, uh, returns to industrial forms. Had he been away from them for decades? Do you have a guess as to why he returned to them? Well, it's a real good question. The, these late formal studies were a little bit of a surprise to me. They almost have a Ray Metzger-esque sort of quality, zeroing in on lines and shapes. They're, some of them are wonderfully complex. Others are, are pretty simple. The, the landscape images in Utah were completely new to me. I, I don't think any of those have ever been reproduced before. But, you know, I think in part it's, it's an aspect of his return to what's familiar. These are pictures that we don't see in exactly this form earlier on. They're more reductive they're more about a sort of a minimal or physically unimpressive kind of geometry that becomes impressive visually through the camera, if that makes sense. So the, they're sort of of smaller subjects. I mean, they're of painted lines on a street as opposed to a dam or a highway or a bridge. So they're about small things but heightened moments of perception, which was clearly what Crawford's overall view was, was all about, his work is all about. But they're being made at the same time that he's making pictures of, you know, crushed cars and uh, torn torn signs and that sort of thing. So he was, again, this sense of visual curiosity that he had never left him. And it allowed him to look at and appreciate all kinds of facets of, of the world around him. Keith Davis, thank you. You're very welcome. I, I appreciate the time and your interest in the show. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.